Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at If you have your Bibles, uh, just keep them close to you. We're going to uh, be all over the place um, in the scriptures today, um, specifically because we're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics to talk about um, in any sermon, and, and hopefully he finds his place in every sermon, uh, because to not talk about Jesus would... Uh, be to not preach. It would be to not um, come together as a church and worship. It, it, would, uh, it would cease us glorifying God if we're not talking about Jesus. And so anything and everything that we do as a church, we exist solely for the person and work of Jesus Christ, for him to be honored, for him to be glorified, for his name to be extolled, for his name to be lifted up, for him to be made much of. We want anything and everything that we do from a corporate setting, from an organizational setting, down to each one of us individually. We want our thoughts, we want our actions, we want our deeds, we want our words, we want our work, we want our families, we want everything we do to be about Jesus because everything is about Jesus. Everything throughout Genesis to Revelation, the entire Bible from front to back is a story about one man, Jesus Christ. And that's why it excites me to talk about this is because everything we do should point to him. It's not about our band. It's not about me. It's not about Josh or Jeremy. It's not about leadership. It's not about the district church. It's about Jesus Christ. And if it's all about Jesus Christ, then we will be honoring God. We will be praising Him. We will be glorifying Him in everything that we do. And the gospel will be advanced in the city. People will come to know Jesus because, again, I'd love to get to know you, but I want you to know Jesus. I want you to know Him personally because Jesus can satisfy you. I can't satisfy you. Jesus can meet your needs. I can't meet your needs. I've got needs. We want everything to be about Jesus. And so that's why we get really excited when we talk about him because I know that there's nothing that I can do or say to make or bring peace in your life without it having Jesus involved in it. Without Jesus being the equation. Jesus plus anything is nothing. Jesus plus nothing is everything. And that's what we want to be about as a church. That's what we strive for as leaders. Anything and everything we do, we want to make sure Jesus is woven into the fabric and that he's the one that we are ultimately trusting when it comes to the songs we sing, to the, the, the sermons that we preach, the series that we go through, when it comes to the, the studies that we do in our missional groups, when it comes to the studies that we do in discipleship groups. We want to make sure that everything centers around the life, the death, and the resurrection, the eternality of Jesus Christ, him being fully God, him being fully man, everything is about Jesus. And so we we are unashamedly confessing that and proclaiming that as a church. And so if you spend any amount of time with us and days go by and you don't hear us talking about Jesus, please come and talk to me so that we can realign 
we can pull each other aside and we can get together and say, where are we at? What are we doing? If we're not talking about Jesus, if we're not celebrating Jesus, if we're not worshiping Jesus, then we are not a church. We are not planting a church. We are not planting the gospel. We are not advancing the gospel if we are not centered around the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so that's why, again, I cannot say enough how excited I am to preach about Jesus and to walk through what our doctrinal statement is as a church about him because without this statement, we will stray away from his mission. We will stray away from his glory that he deserves. And so if we don't stay tied to this, and what I mean by doctoral statement is, is looking at totality of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, everything that's taught about Jesus Christ, boiling it down into kind of a, a nutshell version of this is who he is, this is what he stands for, and this is who we are as a church in response to the person and work of Jesus. And so kind of the two things that I'm going to answer today um, as, we, as I read through the statement and then as I jump into kind of the instruction preaching time of it is answering two things is uh, who does the world say Jesus is? I guess three things. Who does the world say Jesus is? Who does Jesus say he is? And then that then determines or... or um, demands a response from us based on who we say Jesus is. And so those are the three things that we're going to look at. But before uh, we jump into instruction, I want to read our statement of faith as a church. Um, This is who we believe Jesus to be according to the scriptures. Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, is the eternal Word made flesh, supernaturally conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He is perfect in nature teaching and obedience. He is fully God and fully man. Through him, all things came into being and were created. He was before all things and in him, all things hold together by the word of his power. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation and in him dwells the fullness of God. He is the only savior for the sins of the world having shed his blood and died on a cross. His death in our place revealed God's love and upheld his divine justice, removing our guilt and reconciling us to God. Having redeemed us from sin, on the third day he rose from the grave, victorious over death and sin, and then for a period of 40 days he appeared to the disciples and over 500 witnesses. He ascended into heaven where, at God's right hand, he intercedes for his people and rules as Lord over all. He is the head of the church, his body, who anxiously awaits his return. As a doctrinal statement, that is what we believe the person of Jesus Christ is. We believe that he has existed for eternity past as the second person of the Trinity that we talked about two weeks ago. We know that he entered into um, earth. He left the culture of heaven and entered into the culture of earth. He left the presence and adoration of angels and entered into the presence um, and mockery of sinners. He ultimately came as the first missionary into our world in order to seek and to pursue those who were lost so that he would bring salvation for them. 
And then after bringing salvation for them, he ascended back to heaven where we as the body of Christ, we as the people who, who position our lives under the banner of Jesus Christ as our Lord, as our Savior, as our King, as our ruler, as the one who gives authority to all of our lives, anything and everything we do, we anxiously await for him to come back, to, to, to grab all of us together with him, and then rule and reign alongside of him in heaven for eternity future. This is Jesus Christ whom we serve. And the cool thing about him is that there is no one in all of history, no one who is more famous than Jesus. No one. The name Jesus is derived from the Old Testament, named Joshua, which means Yahweh, God is salvation. The title Christ is not his last name. A lot of times people think Christ is just the last name of Jesus, but Christ is also a title that was given to him. It means one chosen and anointed by God to be the Messiah who delivers God's people. So he is the God of salvation who comes to deliver God's people. Jesus, roughly 2,000 years ago, was born in a dumpy rural town outside of Jerusalem. He was born in a town that today would be similar to where there would be guys who believe pro wrestling is real. It would probably be a town where they jack up their trucks with mud tires and, and think that it's going to enhance their driving skills in the mud. Like they probably change their own oil at home. Like I'm describing my hometown that I'm from. This is the type of town that he's from. There's no more than 100 people that are from this town where Jesus was born. He was born to an unwed, poor teenage girl who was mocked for claiming that she was conceived via the Holy Spirit supernaturally. He was earthly fathered by a guy named Joseph who spent his entire life as a, a blue-collar, just carpenter. And so Jesus literally spent the first 30 years of his life in obscurity swinging a hammer with his dad. Like his resume at first glance is rather simple. He never traveled more than 100 miles from his home. He never held a political office. He never married, never attended college, never excelled in the sports arena. He died both homeless and poor. Nonetheless, Jesus is still the most famous person in all of human history. More songs have been sung to him, artwork created of him, and books written about him than anyone who has ever lived. In fact, Jesus looms so large over human history that we literally measure time around the birth of Jesus. B.C. being before Christ and A.D. being Anno Domini in the year of the Lord, respectively. Jesus is the most famous person who has ever lived. No army, no nation, or person has changed human history to the degree that Jesus, the homeless man, has. Some 2,000 years after he walked the earth, Jesus remains as popular as ever. In fact, Paul even says in 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4, that the opinions about Jesus are countless in seemingly every area of culture. So even in first century, 
Jesus, the name of Jesus, had spread to every ideology, every religion, every belief system, every cultural uh, kind of mandate, whether it was mainstream media, whether it was kind of the backwoods people, like no matter who you were or where you were, you heard of the name of Jesus and therefore had opinions about the name of Jesus. And so the first thing I want to look at is, is in our current day, what does the world say about Jesus? On television, this is Jesus of pop culture. On television, Jesus often appears on long-running animation hits like The Simpsons, Family Guy, South Park. Most of the time, Jesus is appearing in a sacrilegious way on those shows. Jesus also appears, does anybody remember Carlo Mencia, uh, Carlos Mencia, Mind of Mencia? This was like my college years, might have been before you. But anyways, Jesus appeared on his show, Mind of Mencia, um, where on the show they would explore everything from what it would be like for Jesus to be married to Jesus also being a part of this like wrestling federation that involved all world religious leaders uh, where they would come together and just fight with one another. Um, it kind of reminds me, does, do any of y'all remember Celebrity Deathmatch? So like Celebrity Deathmatch, there was an episode where it was like Jesus versus Satan. And, and throughout the match, like Satan has victory over Jesus. But then, of course, he resurrects from the dead and then ultimately takes over and kills Satan. There's Dog the Bounty Hunter. Do you all remember that show? Uh, this is like he's the famous Christian bell bondsman. He praises Jesus almost in every episode along with his wife and her clear high heels and then kind of the rest of the chain smoking posse. And they're asking Jesus to bless the manhunt that they're about to embark on. There's my personal favorite, Duck Dynasty. Um, this literally is my family, if you ever get a chance to go to a reunion with me. Um, but the family gathers for dinner uh, at the end of every single episode, and they pray to Jesus. They're thanking him for uh, friends. They're thanking him for family. They're thanking him for life and, of course, fried frog legs. Um, in the world of fashion, Jesus appears on numerous T-shirts. Uh, there's the classic t-shirt, Jesus is my homeboy. It's been worn by everyone um, from Ben Affleck, Brad Pitt, Ashton Kutcher, Madonna, Pamela Anderson. Um, roughly 100 films have been made about Jesus. Uh, this is including top grossing movies like The Passion of the Christ, The Da Vinci Code, um, along with this really bizarre one that I found. I kind of want to watch it. Um, Canadian kung fu horror musical comedy, Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter. So if anyone wants to watch that one, I'm down. In the film Talladega Nights, comedian Will Ferrell's character play, or prays to an eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus in golden fleece diapers. There are even Jesus wrestling federations, uh, such as Wrestling for Jesus, Ultimate Christian Wrestling, and the Christian Wrestling Foundation, which are dedicated strictly to redneck outreach. Um, musically, everyone from rapper Kanye West to The Killers, Green Day, Carrie Underwood, U2, and Lady Gaga are singing about Jesus. Um, not necessarily in worshipful ways, but they're still mentioning him. Uh, the Beatles frontman John Lennon even once said, we're more popular than Jesus now. In the sports world, uh, it seems that every time someone hits the game-winning home run, final shot, uh, scores a touchdown, makes the last goal, they thank their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
Tim Tebow has been one of the ones probably mocked the most for this. He's kind of become the brunt of the joke on a lot of late night TV shows, um, especially when he was the quarterback for the Denver Broncos just a couple of years ago. I know there's a fan over here in the room. Um, But anyways, one of the skits was every time Tebow would actually throw a touchdown, the hand of God would come out of heaven, grab the ball and guide it into the hands of the receiver um, just because Tebow is not necessarily the greatest. Um, But anyways, I kind of believe that to be true just for the fact that the Broncos won as many games as they did that year. Um, And then there's Jesus among the worlds and cults and religions. Um, It's fascinating how some people will boldly claim that essentially everyone teaches the same thing. Like every religion teaches the same thing. But when it comes down to the person of Jesus Christ, in no way do we all teach um, the same thing. Digging deeper into the Jehovah's Witnesses, I mentioned them a couple of weeks ago. Uh, they say that Jesus was merely Michael the Archangel, a created being that became a man. Mormonism teaches that Jesus was not God, but only a man who became one of many gods. It actually furthermore teaches that he was a polygamist and half-brother of Lucifer, um, which is Satan. Unitarian Universalism teaches that Jesus was not God, but rather essentially an incarnation of Mr. Rogers. Who remembers Mr. Rogers? All right, just a guy who's a great guy, well-respected in the community, who teaches on love and justice. Um, That's kind of who Unitarian Universalism uh, thinks Jesus is. New Age guru Deepak Chopra told Larry King, I see Christ as a state of consciousness we can all aspire to. And so kind of his idea was, Jesus is an idea. He's an idea that we can all, when we devote our attention to, we can ultimately become exactly who he is. According to Scientology, and I mentioned this one a couple weeks ago, Jesus is an implant. Now listen to this. He's an implant forced upon a thetan about two million years ago. And as I said, I would explain that further, but I've never done drugs. Um, And I lack the imagination to, uh, to understand a religion that was literally started by a science fiction writer that has like unleashed Tom Cruise as like the evil doppelganger to Billy Graham. Um, but anyways, Buddhism teaches that Jesus was not God, but rather an enlightened man like the Buddha. Hinduism, with its many views of Jesus, does not consider him to be the only God, but most likely a wise man or incarnation of God, much like Krishna. Islam teaches that Jesus was merely a man and a prophet who is inferior to Muhammad. Um, Indian Hindu leader Mahatma Gandhi said, I cannot ascribe exclusivity to, or exclusive divinity to Jesus. He is as divine as Krishna or Rama or Muhammad or Zoroaster. The Lakota Native American tribe, just in case you were wondering, said Jesus is the buffalo calf of God. I just thought that was fantastic. Um, President Thomas Jefferson said Jesus did not mean to impose himself on mankind as the son of God. He just kind of mistakenly did that, but didn't mean to do that. Fidel Castro said, I never saw a contradiction between the ideas that sustain me and the ideas of that symbol of that extraordinary figure, Jesus Christ. We believe the same thing. Jesus was a communist. Adolf Hitler said, in boundless love, as a Christian and as a man, I read how terrific was Jesus' fight for the world against the Jewish poison. Jesus was a good Nazi. Now, not making too big of a jump from Hitler, there's also the demons that are in Scripture. 
Um, while many people, cults, religions, pop culture, tend to get the identity of Jesus wrong, it's actually the demons who are more likely to get it right. The demons in Scripture actually have some of the highest Christology that we see in the Scriptures because anytime they interact with Jesus, they know exactly who he is. The Gospel of Mark, one of the shortest Gospels, gets right to the point in chapter 1, verse 24. Jesus comes into the town. He stirs up a ruckus. He calls men to follow them. He begins healing. He begins teaching. And then he interacts with these demons. And they say in, in chapter 1, verse 24, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? We know who you are, the Holy One of God. This is what we see spread throughout all of our culture. Constantly, every single day, people are coming up with new definitions, new terms, new ideologies for who they believe Jesus to be. And I think one of the primary reasons why we're recreating who Jesus is is because the message of Jesus is bittersweet. The message of Jesus, when he comes into town and he begins preaching in first century, his message is not, you're awesome. You should probably stay exactly the way that you are because I think you're awesome. And because I think you're awesome, I want to invite you to come be with me in heaven and kind of hang out with me for eternity because I think we would really enjoy each other. Like, that's not Jesus' message. Jesus' message coming into town was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, why would you need to repent if there wasn't something wrong? Why would you, because to repent means literally just to change your mind. And what Jesus is ultimately getting at with his message is who you are is wrong. What you decide to do is wrong. What you think to do is wrong. Who you serve is wrong. Where you're looking for satisfaction is wrong. Everything about your life and the direction that you're heading, the thoughts that you have, the actions that you have, the words that you have, the deeds that you have, every single bit of it is on a path to destruction. It's on a path to hell. And so Jesus enters into the scene and says, repent, stop going in that direction. I'm providing a way for you that is not leading to destruction, but rather is leading to life and eternal life. But you have to to see the fact that you're heading in the wrong direction before you can ever turn, before you can ever repent, before you can ever see what I have to offer you. And so the reason why we want to redefine who Jesus is is because we don't like it when people tell us we're wrong. We don't like it when people reveal to us our flaws. We don't like it when our sins are revealed and we're shown for who we truly are and who we actually know we really are underneath. We want the world around us to validate who we are. We want the world around us to see our best foot forward. We want the world around us to constantly like our Instagram pages, like our Facebook posts, like our Twitter feeds. We want the world around us to follow us and to favorite us, but never expose us for who we really are. And what Jesus is doing is he's entering into the scene and he's saying, I'm coming to fix 
what is broken. You could not do it on your own. I have to come and do it for you, but I need you to understand that you need me, that you need a Savior. Why would we ever repent from something that we feel is working for us? And so Jesus comes and his message is not sugar-coated. His message is not, hey, you're a great, successful business person. Hey, you're a great and successful teacher. He's saying, no, you're a flawed business person. You're a flawed teacher because everything you do is for your gain, not the gain and glory of Christ himself. And when we're, and the reason why that's bad news is because when we're out for our own gain and our own glory, it will never satisfy us. It will never provide the joy that we are so longing for in our own personal gain. And so when Jesus comes in and says, when you actually ascribe that gain and that glory and that adoration and that worship, when you give it to someone else rather than you, particularly when you give it to Jesus Christ, it will provide for you the satisfaction that you're longing for. It will provide for you the peace and the contentment It will provide for you the joy that you are so desperately pleading for and searching for every single day. And so Jesus coming in and telling us to repent and turn from seeking after our own life, but rather seek after the life of Jesus is the best news, the best news that anyone will ever find and hear. And so because we have so many ideologies about Jesus, because we have so many views about Jesus, and, and, and we in this room are not, um, we, we are not above even having wrong views of Jesus in this room because we are still sinners. We, we still have sin that dwells within us. We're, we're kind of that simultaneous sent or, or sin, sinner, saint, We're being sanctified. We're being made in the image of Christ for those who have accepted him and live under the banner of Jesus. But that does not mean that my word and my actions and my deeds and my thoughts are perfect at all times. Therefore, it is possible for my words, my thoughts, my deeds, and my actions towards Jesus can be wrong still. And so in order for us to constantly be reformed back to the idea of who Jesus is, the best thing that we can do is let Jesus speak for himself. Rather than me asking you guys who is Jesus and you asking me who is Jesus, who does Jesus say he is? What does he say about himself in Scripture? The first thing I want to mention is the fact that Jesus said he came down from heaven. For the kingdom of God is at hand. He came down from heaven. He says in John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, there have been many people claim to have had heaven um, experiences or near-death experiences where they caught a glimpse of heaven. Um, I mean, this is, this is not out of the norm. Um, there's, there are tons of celebrities who claim to have had rep, uh, reported near-death experiences. Jane Seymour, Elizabeth Taylor, Sharon Stone, Gary Busey. That one's not so much a shocker. Um, Tony Bennett, Burt Reynolds, Chevy Chase, um, George Lucas, several others. Uh, many books have been written about near-death experiences, including Transformed by the Light, Embraced by the Light, 90 Minutes in Heaven. Um, some, however, claim, this is, this is weird, this is bizarre some of the things you find when you're doing research, but um, some claim that when they actually got into heaven, they saw the king as Elvis. Um, 
not Jesus. And apparently, so many people, in fact, have experienced this that there was a, a book written about it titled Elvis Afterlife. Um, even the Muslim prophet Muhammad also claimed that on one occasion he was taken from earth to heaven. The Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, um, standing on the side of the original Jewish temple, is uh, memorializing that alleged event um, where it was considered um, that Muhammad went up into heaven. It's considered their third holiest uh, Muslim mon monument in the world. Um, however, unlike a near death experience where we kind of get a glimpse into heaven um no one has reported that they've come from heaven except for jesus himself like i've never died and then like you know been resuscitated and brought back to life i don't know what you see in that brief moment of of those as for some say 90 minutes or for others might be 90 seconds. I mean, there, there have been people who have died and who, who have been brought back to life. We see that in scripture. I don't know what Lazarus experienced for those three, four days that he was dead. I don't know. So I, I can't speak for those who say they've had near-death experiences. But what I can say is that there is no one who has proclaimed that they've come from heaven as Jesus has claimed himself. Jesus boldly claimed to be God who lived in heaven and came down from his eternal home to visit earth as a man. He claimed to be God incarnate, or his claim to be God incarnate has never been made by the founder of any other world religion. Before his birth as a man, he lived with the Father in heaven. No mere human can say this, but Jesus did. Next thing he says is Jesus said he was more than just a good man. When you conduct an on-the-street interview um, and you just ask people, who, who is Jesus? The number one answer you're going to get is that he was a good teacher. He was just a good person who lived a couple thousand years ago. Mark 10, 17 through 18, you have this guy interact with Jesus and he comes up to him. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. This man likely thought he was honoring Jesus by calling him a good teacher. And basically Jesus' response is, and is, is implying the fact that, look, if you just think that I'm a good teacher, basically you are just thinking that I'm a man who's, who's morally upright, that I'm a man who's, who's kind of above reproach, that I'm a man who has some good thoughts and actions. He's saying, then you're not seeing me for who I am. If you're just seeing me as a man, then you're seeing me like everyone else, and there is no good man. And so what Jesus is actually implying there is the fact that I'm not just a good teacher, I'm God. Because only God is good. And he's making us good by, by, by bringing us into the family. Billy Graham said it best, Jesus was not just another great religious teacher, nor was he only another in a long line of individuals seeking after spiritual truth. He was, instead, truth itself. He was God incarnate. This is the only reason why they killed Jesus. No one was killed in first century for being good teachers. That's what they were after. Like the whole reason for the Pharisees to have the rules about the rules about the rules was because they were trying to make people good. They were trying to make people righteous. Now, their method was through self-righteousness, 
Their method was through self-help. Their method was, was abide by all these rules that we're giving to you about the rules that are about the rules within the rules. And so it's just do all these things and you will be morally upright. You won't be like the sinners and the thieves. You won't be like the people that Jesus is actually interacting with. You won't be like the tax collectors and the drunkards and the thieves and the prostitutes. These are the people who Jesus came to minister to and interact with. And the Pharisees are saying, no, 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 no. We want everyone to be good on the outside because we think that God will then have approval over us as if it actually was our inside, our identity. Jesus wasn't crucified because he was a good teacher, because he was morally upright, because he never did anything wrong. He was crucified because he claimed to be God, more than just a good man. Jesus then said that he was the son of man. When picking a title for himself, Jesus apparently was most fond of this title, son of man, he spoke of himself by this term roughly 80 times throughout the four Gospels. Um, he lifted the title from the prophet Daniel, who penned it some 600 years before Jesus' birth. In Daniel's vision, the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days, the Lord himself. But he comes from the clouds, from heaven, not from earth. And so the Old Testament speaks of this divine person sitting alongside the Lord as an equal the second person of the Trinity was promised to receive the messianic mission to redeem the world, to defeat every enemy, and to rescue the broken people. This is exactly who Daniel saw as he glanced up to heaven and he saw the Son of Man coming from the clouds. He saw Jesus going to the Father and receiving the instructions to then come down to earth in order to come and re to redeem and to save. And so Jesus pinned and brought that title and said, who Daniel was talking about 600 years before I was born, I'm now here. I'm that person. Jesus performed miracles. Um, there's ample evidence throughout the New Testament that Jesus performed miracles. Nearly 40 specific miracles are mentioned. In Mark's short gospel alone, roughly one-third of the verses that are mentioned in Mark's gospel have to deal with Jesus' miracles that he was performing um, in the communities around there. Furthermore, even those who opposed Jesus acknowledged that he did perform miracles that needed to be accounted for. Opponents of Jesus outside of Scripture also testify to his miracles. The Jewish Talmud charged that Jesus practiced magic. Um, the noted Jewish historian Josephus also reported that Jesus was a doer of wonderful works. Throughout his life, Jesus performed a great number of miracles, but each of the miracles were not meant to just provide something for someone. It was not meant to just be a, a practical deed of helpfulness for someone who was lame or for someone who needed to, to, to kind of blow up a, a little boy's lunch and feed 5,000 people. Like it wasn't just meant for each of those individual scenarios, but rather it was meant to proclaim, I'm God. I have authority over nature as he calmed storms. I have authority over illnesses as he healed people. I have authority over death as he brought people back to life. I have authority over food as he multiplied loaves of bread and fish. He has authority over everything. And the only reason why he has authority over everything is because he is, in fact, God. So then he begins telling people that he's God. 
Jesus clearly, emphatically, and repeatedly said he is God. Um, if his statements were untrue, it would have been blasphemous violation of the first commandment, which again is why they sought out to kill him. Mark 14, 61 through 64, he remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. John 8, 58 and 59, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus' claim to be I am spans several millennia. 2,000 years prior to Jesus' birth is in the time of Abraham. And he's saying, before Abraham was, I existed. Well, he's talking to other humans when he's sharing this. He's talking to guys that are like, um, you were just born like 30-something years ago. And you're saying that 2,000 years ago, around Abraham's time, one of our forefathers that we look up to, you're saying that you existed before him. Like the math doesn't add up there. And then for him to use the statement saying, I am, is also uh, dubbing the term from Moses and the burning bush, which is roughly 1,400 years before Jesus' birth. And he's basically saying, yeah, when Moses, one of the guys that we look up to, the law that we follow, the one that he wrote, that same guy that went up on Mount Sinai that saw the burning bush, and from the burning bush, Moses asked, who do we go and tell the people gave me these instructions? It was God who said, I am that I am. And Jesus here is responding, I am. I am God. I am the one that they claim. This claim is the very reason why Jesus was murdered on the cross. Another thing to mention about this is, is in no other world religion, I mean, there have been some crazies out there who have probably proclaimed to be God, um, might not necessarily be all in their mind as far as right. Um, but the reality is, is no world religious leader has claimed the same claims that Jesus himself has. No, none of them have claimed anything. Buddha, Krishna, Muhammad, Gandhi, none of them claim to be God. But Jesus assured his followers, he assured his community, he assured every single, one, every single person around him, I'm God. I am him. Another thing Jesus said was that he was sinless. Sins both omission and commission, just as I've been talking about, thoughts, actions, deeds, words, anything that we think, anything that we do, anything that we long for can be involved in the realm of sin because if we're doing it for our own gain rather than the gain of Christ, then it's sin. If we're doing it for our glory and not the glory of God, then it's sin. This is Romans 1. This is us exchanging creator for creation. This is us worshiping creation rather than him. This is us loving God's stuff more than we love God. That's sin. So it can be omission and commission. Sins of omission is, is when we know we should do something and we choose not to. We know we should worship God and we choose not to. We know we should share the gospel with others and we choose not to. Those types of sins of omission are still sins. It's not just sins of commission where when we know what we're not supposed to do and we then do it. 
Usually that's kind of the realm we think about when we think of sinners. We think of those who Jesus hung out with. We think of tax collectors who robbed people, who were thieves. We think of prostitutes who prostitute their bodies as, as, as gain. We, we talk about drunkards. We talk about those who, who give their lives over to creation rather than serving creator. And the reality is, is, yes, that is sin, but it's just as much a sin for me to place my hope and my trust and how much I know about scripture rather than knowing Jesus in scripture. How much I pray more than who I'm praying to. How much I share the gospel without any concern of the people actually coming to know Jesus when I share the gospel. If I'm doing it just to check off boxes about being a good Christian, I'm still sinning. So we can't view sin as something that is beyond even doing good things. As Isaiah says, even our good deeds are viewed as filthy rags in the eyes of God. And so when it comes down to Jesus, he says, I was sinless. Never done anything wrong. Everything he was supposed to do, he did. Everything he wasn't supposed to do, he didn't do. He was tempted in every way that we are tempted, yet was without sin. And oftentimes throughout the scriptures, we see them constantly trying to bring charge again, charge again, charge again against Jesus. And every single one of them fell short. Mark 14, 55 through 56, you see the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. They're just making stuff up. They're just, walking, hey, you got anything on Jesus? Have you got any angles that you're, I mean, it was like literally like they're reporters just going out trying to get any and every story on Jesus they could possibly get. But every single time that they try to gather their stories, none of them could agree on their stories. Nothing made sense because they could never find any charge against him. I mean, think about Jesus' family. Can you think about James being the brother of Jesus when your brother's always doing everything right and James could never have a, a, a complaint saying, well, it was Jesus who made me do it. No, Jesus doesn't lead us into temptation, James. Well, it was Jesus who broke the... No, Jesus doesn't do anything wrong, James. So constantly, con like Jesus never did anything wrong. Because he was sinless, he also then forgave sin, has the power to forgive sin. While many of the resources in our world are spent on dealing with the effects of sin, just think about that. The effects of sin in all of our world include war, illness, death, depression, crime, poverty. All of these things are effects of sin. They're results of sin, and the majority of the resources of our world are devoted towards trying to deal with the effects of sin, but in no way can solve the issue of sin. In no way can solve the issue of sin. There's no amount of money, there's no amount of policies that we can pass, there's nothing that we can do in the world with our own resources in order to solve the sin issue. Jesus steps onto the scene, and when Jesus comes into it, he says to us, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. 
Luke chapter 7, verse 48, is reported, Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven, as he's talking to the sinful, repentant woman. In Luke 5, 20 and 21, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Like, can you imagine someone saying that he's God and has the authority to forgive your sin? Like, can you imagine just having, like, a friend who, like, you wronged them in some way, and, like, as soon as you wronged them in some way, they just say, not I forgive you, but they say, your sins are forgiven. It's okay. Like, we don't have that authority. We have the authority to forgive them on our behalf because of Christ's forgiveness of us. But me just forgiving someone does not forgive their sins because they're ultimately not sinning against me. They're sinning against God. The only reason why I'm forgiving is because we want reconciliation between us. I want you to know and understand that your sin against me or my sin against you, we don't want that to hinder our relationship of pursuit of one another. But what I want to make sure is that you're not just apologizing to me, but that you're going and confessing and repenting to God because ultimately you've sinned against him, not against me. Not against me. There's horizontal results of sin but ultimately it's a vertical issue that needs to be dealt with rather than horizontal only jesus taught people to pray to him as god if jesus wasn't god and teaching and telling people to pray to him if he wasn't god and did not have the power to answer the prayers this is the most cruelest thing that anybody could do Because now for 2,000 years, you have billions of people who span that time who have been praying, placing hope, asking requests for Jesus to answer. And if he's not God and can't answer, this is the sickest prank that anyone could have ever placed on somebody. But we see time and time again them praying to Jesus. In Acts chapter 7, 59, we see Stephen, the first martyr, as he's being stoned for preaching and proclaiming Jesus. You see him cry out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. This is no longer just praying to the Father, just praying to the God above. But this is Jesus saying that you can talk to the Father through me. You can talk to me. You can talk to the Holy Spirit. You can talk to God in each of the persons that exist because I'm mediating for you. It's only like if all of creation came into being through Jesus, all of salvation comes into being through Jesus. Our worship to God is only possible through Jesus. Our prayer to God is only possible through Jesus. Our service to others is only possible through Jesus. Us sharing the gospel with others and them coming to know Jesus is only possible through Jesus. Everything that we do channels through Jesus, and that's why he said, I'm the way. I am the way to heaven. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is where Christianity is both inclusive and exclusive. A lot of times people give Christianity a bad rap that it's only exclusive, that it's only for those who 
who, 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 who truly just fall, like are almost just kind of born into loving Jesus. It's almost as if we've created this kind of subculture of Christianity and no one else is allowed. It's only Jesus lovers. It's only those who were born into this thing. And that's not the truth. The truth is Christianity is the most inclusive religion because anybody's welcome. Anybody's welcome. As I stated a couple of weeks ago when we celebrated our one-year anniversary, anytime I see Paul in Scripture, every time I see Paul, it makes me think one thing, anyone's welcome. Because when I look at Paul, I see two people. I see Paul, who is a devout religious man who knew more than anybody else in his community about the Old Testament scriptures and the Old Testament law, the amount of schooling that he went through. He was studying under Rabbi Gamaliel. In order to get under Rabbi Gamaliel, you have to be the best of the best of the best. You have to literally have the Old Testament memorized to study under Rabbi Gamaliel. So when it comes to being a devout, religious, self-righteous person, Paul was second to none. He literally says that of himself. When it comes to being a Pharisee, I'm the greatest Pharisee. I have more zeal than anybody when it comes to studying the Scriptures. But he didn't know Jesus. He only knew what he knew. And he was considered one of the most religious men of his day. We would look at that today and we would look at the people who in Christianity we would call the fundamentalists. These are the ones and they're not fun at all. Um, They're just extremely fundamental in the rudimentary studies of Scripture and and have literally taken all the laws, including the laws of Jesus, and now hold it over everybody in order for you to be above reproach in your own strength. It's legalism. It's doing Christianity for your own gain as if there's any gain to be had from just trying to be good. Like, like it doesn't work, but this is exactly who Paul was before he met Jesus. Another person that Paul was before he met Jesus was also a murderer of people. Zealous to murder people. All about murdering Christians and persecuting the church. You can't get on any other spectrum than Paul when it comes to doing things that are right to also doing things that are wrong. And so when I see Paul and I see Jesus pursuing him, what I see there is anyone's welcome. But then when Jesus makes a statement like this, I am the way and the truth and the life and no man comes to the Father through me except through me, what that also says is there is one specific route. There's one specific way. And if you miss it, you miss it. It's absolutely exclusive. There is only one way to receive eternal life. There's only one way to get there. The, the, the number one argument that goes against this is what we call um, pluralism. And pluralism is just the idea that, that any way goes. Any belief works. All roads lead to heaven. And I'm sorry, but like If all roads lead to heaven, like anything we believe spiritually also has factors or determiners based on how we live out our lives physically. And if you believe all roads lead to heaven, apply that to your physical realm. Go out onto I-465, start driving and see when you arrive at home. It's not going to, it doesn't make sense. All roads lead to heaven. No, 
What do we do when we're trying to get to a destination that we don't know how to get there? We pull out our phones, we plug in the address, and we need to know the specific way to get there. Because if I just start driving, I'm not going to get where I need to get to. This is one of the primary reasons why we need to share the gospel with people is because we're giving them the route to get to the destination where they really want to go to. We're all designed and, and it's, it's, it's within us to desire and long for eternity with God. It's just we all have our own understandings of how to actually get there. And what Jesus is doing is he's coming in and he's saying, stop going that route, stop going that road, stop going this way, stop that belief. You need to trust in me and me alone. I'm the only way to get here. If all roads lead to heaven were true, Jesus never needed to die on the cross. He never needed to come to earth if all roads lead to heaven. If all roads lead to heaven, all that means is Jesus could have stayed sitting on his throne. He could have looked down and he said, all right, and all the tolls are open. Everyone start progressing your way forward. Whichever ones are going to gain my hearty approval, then you're going to be the ones that I ultimately accept. And if that were the case, then literally the world is just a giant talent show. It's a giant X factor. It's a giant America's Got Talent where Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit are sitting there on the judgment seat. And we're coming to center stage and we're just trying things out, hoping that we don't get the red X and that they'll push us through to the next round. And what Jesus is coming to say is your act, your talent, your gift, whatever it is, doesn't work. You do not please us. You fall short every single time. And because you fall short, we're hitting the X. It's not holy. It's not perfect. It's not pure. And so what he does is Jesus gets off of his judgment seat. He comes to center stage and he performs for God the judge. And when God the judge looks at him, he says, yes, that's what I've been looking for this entire time. That's what I want. And what Jesus does at center stage is he says, take the hearty approval of my performance and give it to anybody that's willing to accept it as their performance as well. This is what Jesus has done when he comes to say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He comes to us and he says, stop performing yourselves I'm coming to perform for you. And when I perform for you, God will never look at it as though it's fallen short. God will never look at you as invaluable. When you accept my performance on, on your behalf, God sees you as he sees me. And he says, yes, send him through to the next round. Send him through to heaven. Send him through to inherit and receive all that God ultimately is this is what Jesus is proclaiming to us. And then we see this interaction between Jesus and his disciples in Matthew 16, 13 through 18. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Jesus has been here for three years performing. He's been performing his entire life for God. He's been earning all of God's pleasure on our behalf. 
And when he comes to the disciples, he says, who do the people say that I am? Because who they say that I am matters. It matters. If they don't see me as the son of man, if they don't see me as Jesus Christ, if they don't see me as the savior of the world, then they miss it. They miss it. Who do the people say the son of man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. I love that. I love that because if it's still up to me to even see Jesus for who he is, guess what? I'm still going to fall short. If it's up to me to determine Jesus to be who he is, then my thoughts towards him could still be wrong. But rather, when I get to see Jesus finally in that moment of salvation for me, when I was 12 years old, when I saw Jesus, that was not because someone just explained him perfectly to me. Because it was a fifth grader who explained Jesus to me. And a fifth grader, although he explained him phenomenally, did not explain him perfectly. But he didn't have to because it came from heaven. God himself revealed to me who Jesus is is just as he revealed him to paul just as he reveals him to you and the way that he reveals him to you is that as the gospel is being proclaimed the holy spirit comes in to your heart and your mind and he regenerates you and he reveals to you this is the son this is jesus this is who you need for salvation and for forgiveness this has been revealed to you not by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or hell will not overcome it. On that statement of Peter's faith is what Christ built his church upon. Jesus is Lord. That's why I said in the very beginning, if we are not about the name of Jesus Christ, he will not build this church. He will not advance this church. He will not expand this church. He will not grow this church if we are not extolling the name of Jesus. We see this in Acts chapter 19 when the church was planted in Ephesus. The only reason why it was planted in Ephesus was because the people were extolling and making much of the name of Jesus as they were making much of the name of Jesus, they were literally coming and burning everything that they were placing their hope and trust in. They were placing their hope and trust in the magic arts. They were placing their trust in the hope of uh, the Greek goddess Artemis. And because those things were falling short, Jesus came in and provided all that they needed. And so they didn't need those other things anymore. They came and brought them and confessed their sins. They came to one another and said, hey, you know what? Doing my business to the best of my ability is not going to provide what I ultimately need, and I need Jesus. And so I want to confess that so that I can receive Jesus. And this is what they were doing. In Romans 10, 9 through 11, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved, as the Scripture says. Anyone who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. The evidence is clear. This is who Jesus is. This is who the Scriptures testify Jesus is. And so the question is, who do you say Jesus is? 
Is he just some holy homeboy? Is he a fad or a trend? If he is, it's the longest fad or trend that's ever existed. Is he just a good teacher? Or is he indeed who he says he is? My prayer for us is that if there's anyone in this room who has not encountered Jesus for who he is, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit is awakening your heart, awakening your mind in this room today to be able to see him, that the Father's revealing to you right now, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. If you don't know him, you need to know him. You need to repent, as Jesus said when he came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm here. Everything's broken. I'm coming to fix it. And the only way we fix it is by trusting Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. I pray for you. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And if he's not, if he's not that for you, then I pray that you talk to me. I pray that you talk to Josh or Jeremy. I pray if you know someone in this room that you want to go and talk to about Jesus being that for you, the way, the truth, and the life, then please have a conversation. Please have a conversation. Because we want you to experience Jesus, not just the district church. We want you to experience community and union with him, not just community and union with the rest of us here. We will let you down. Jesus won't. And that's why we worshiped him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for, for your beautiful glorious, holy, and perfect Son, Jesus Christ. God, it is Him that we long for. It is Him that we honor. It's Him that we extol. It's His name that we want to make much of in this place because, God, there's no other name deserving. There's no other person deserving of our praise and honor than Jesus Himself. God, if, there's, if there are people in this room who do not have a relationship with Christ, who have not come to you in repentance and confession and have brought their sins, have brought their muck and their mire, have brought their, their fallen life and their brokenness and their... God, if they have not come to you, I pray, I plead that the Holy Spirit would give them the strength to step out and to have a conversation with someone, to walk up to someone and say, I need to accept Jesus. I need to receive his forgiveness. I need to receive his love. I need to receive the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to the earth on our behalf to live a perfect life, to die a death that we deserved and who rose three days later, guaranteeing victory over sin and death and evil and the enemy. And those things cannot hold us back anymore because he gives us victory over those things as well. He guarantees it for us. He promises it. And when Jesus makes a promise, that is a guarantee. So, Father, as we close out in this time of communion, oh, God, let us remember the sacrifice that Jesus made in order for us to have a way to you. God, he broke his body. He shed his blood 
And he did that because that's what we deserved. But he did that for us. He went to center stage. And his performance led him to death. And it was the ultimate act of performing. Because that was exactly what we were to perform ourselves. Is death because of our sin. Oh God, thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for sending Jesus to us. God, let us not go a day. Let us not go an hour. Let us not go a minute or a second without thinking about the person of Jesus. God, there's no other person who deserves our affections more than him. God, don't let us give the praise and adoration of man. Let us give it to Jesus alone. Let him be glorified through us. Father, we love you. Jesus, we love you. Spirit, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at